and 90.9 FM HD3, Urbana. Greetings. Welcome to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, here on WILL AM 580. Coming to you live today, August 19th, 2012. Today we've got a terrific show. One of our favorite guests returns to join us. She's usually here on Pledge Drives or on a recorded show, but we've got her live for the full hour. Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, one of the great, outstanding independent journalists of our times, joining us for the full hour. Hope you'll join us, too. But before we go to our guests, let's go to the NPR News. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is calling on the U.S. to end what he calls a war on whistleblowers. Larry Miller reports Assange spoke today from the diplomatic safety of a balcony at Ecuador's London embassy. Assange's focus was the U.S., and he appealed to President Obama to honor the American commitment to free speech. There must be no more foolish talk about prosecuting any media organization be it WikiLeaks or be it the New York Times. Assange insists whistleblowers must be protected. The United States must pledge before the world that it will not pursue journalists for shining a light on the secret crimes of the powerful. Assange has diplomatic immunity as long as he stays on embassy property. One step further, and he'd be sent to Sweden to answer questions about alleged sex crimes. His lawyer promises legal action to ensure Assange is given safe passage out of Britain. For NPR News, I'm Larry Miller in London. Wildfires are burning in at least 10 western states. In Idaho, the Trinity Ridge Fire is expected to burn through the small mountain town of Featherville. Scott Graff of Boise State Public Radio reports. The fire has been burning for two weeks. It started about 10 miles outside the town. Firefighters have had a very difficult time fighting the fire as it burns in old forest in very rugged terrain. Sheriff's deputies went door to door yesterday and urged Featherville residents to evacuate. Some, however, chose to stay. Heavy smoke filled the air and officials said the evacuation was as much for the poor visibility as for the approaching fire. Among those who have evacuated is Idaho's governor, Butch Otter, who has a cabin in the area. The Trinity Ridge Fire is not expected to slow down anytime soon. It's only 5% contained. Firefighters are hoping to have the fire under control by October 1st. For NPR News, I'm Scott Graff in Boise, Idaho. As the presidential candidates prepare for more campaigning this week, their surrogates visited Sunday talk shows to complain about the opposing sides. Obama campaign advisor Robert Gibbs told Fox News Sunday Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney should release all of his income tax records. He has clearly made uh, a decision that what is in those tax returns is far more damaging to him uh, than to do what every presidential candidate has done, which is show the American people your personal finances. But Romney advisor Ed Gillespie rebuffed Gibbs' demand, saying American voters are more interested in the GOP's positions. It's a shame that the, you know, the campaign of hope and change has denigrated to one of fear and smear, but I think the American people want to have the bigger debate about the big issues. Gillespie also spoke on Fox News Sunday. 
NATO says a bombing in eastern Afghanistan has killed three service members. Their nationalities were not disclosed. However, many NATO troops stationed in that part of Afghanistan are Americans. You're listening to NPR News. American endurance athlete Diana Nyab is trying again to swim between Cuba and Florida. The 62-year-old is not using a shark cage and has suffered several jellyfish stings. She wants to become the first person to make the 103-mile crossing of the Florida Straits without a wetsuit or a cage. It may take as long as 60 hours for Nyad to complete the swim. A new recall of several models of SUVs could affect a quarter of a million vehicles. As NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports, the problem has to do with the vehicle's power lock and window control system. The recall affects five different brands of cars made by General Motors during the model years 2006 and 2007. They include the Buick Rainier, the Chevrolet Trailblazer, and the Isuzu Ascender. The problem is that fluid entering the driver's side door module can corrode the internal electronics, potentially shorting out the system. In some cases, that short can produce smoke or fire. GM says no known injuries have been caused by the defect and that dealers will fix the systems free of charge. The recall affects cars sold or registered in 20 states and the District of Columbia. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News, Washington. Dallas County, Texas, hopes to resume aerial mosquito spraying to fight the West Nile virus. At least 10 people are dead in the region from the mosquito-borne illness, and many people are sick. But aerial spraying efforts stopped Friday night in Dallas because of storms. The weather blocked last night's spraying efforts, too. At least 88,000 acres were sprayed but more than 220,000 acres must still be covered. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for 40 years working to improve health and health care on the web at rwjf.org. Okie dokie. Welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today, August 19th, 2012, here on WILLAM 580. Our guest today, one of our favorite guests to have on Media Matters. It's always an honor and a privilege to have her. Amy Goodman is the host of Democracy Now!, uh, journalist, writer, investigative journalist, uh, and one well-known to all of you. She has a new book coming out we'll be talking about, The Silenced Majority, Stories of Uprisings, Occupations, Resist- Resistance, and Hope with Haymarket Books. Uh, should be a great hour. Amy Goodman, welcome to Media Matters. Oh, it's great to be with you, Bob, and I consider this the first stop on our 100-city whistle-stop tour <laughs> around the country as we lead into these 2012 elections. Well, fantastic. I'm honored uh, to be the first <laughs> stop on it. And, you know, I want to talk about the book, but before we get to the book, I want to talk about the breaking story that you've been covering on Democracy Now! and that NPR led in the news uh, during our break. Uh, Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, uh, what's your assessment of what's going on, its importance, uh, and what are the real issues at stake here? Well, this is so significant for media, for human rights, for uh, press freedom, for the free flow of information for people all over the world. For people who haven't been following the story, just a few hours ago, uh, Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, the whistleblower website that's released so many millions of documents over the last few years of government documents, 
particularly around war, whether in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, Julian Assange, who has taken refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in Britain and just been granted uh, political asylum in the last few days, um, came to the balcony of the Ecuadorian embassy, because if he steps foot on the ground outside, Britain has promised to arrest him, and gave a major address um, talking about press freedom and the protection of whistleblowers all over the world. One of the people he focused on the most, in addition, interestingly, and I bet most people don't realize when he said the word, names of people like Thomas Drake, who he is, Thomas Drake and a few other American citizens he mentioned, worked for the National Security Agency and became whistleblowers and had their houses attacked. These are people who, oh, um, when it comes to freedom of information, um, were so horrified that the National Security Agency was going in the direction of spying on Americans that they stood up, they spoke out. The FBI raided their homes, uh, held them at gunpoint. Some of them were arrested. That's that group. He also talked about um, the American soldier, Bradley Manning, and said that the fact that he is in his, what, 900th day in detention, that he's been held for two years when what the U.N. has called torturous detention um, without a trial now at Fort Leavenworth. He focused on people around the world, including those young women who make up Pussy Riot, the band mm -hmm. in Moscow who just got sentenced on Friday to two years in prison for their political statement in a church um, being critical of Putin. Um, so he was focusing on other cases, but he stood up and he said, in a time when we're seeing a uniformity of message from the, those who prosecuted, you know, Pussy Riot to those who are going after Bradley Manning and others, there must be a uniformity in the response, in the fight back he was talking about against repression of political ideas. Julian Assange um, now is a fugitive, I guess you could say, in the Ecuadorian embassy. Just for a little background, he founded WikiLeaks, right? It released millions of documents. The U.S. government was infuriated. He worked with top newspapers around the world in releasing these documents, from the New York Times to El País in Spain to The Guardian in Britain, um, to papers all over the world uh, in releasing documents. And he did raise the issue of the New York Times in his talk today uh, that he gave from the balcony of the Ecuadorian mission, um, saying that they shouldn't be going after WikiLeaks and they shouldn't go after the New York Times. Um, he was arrested uh, in Britain uh, because Sweden has sought him for questioning around uh, sex molestation allegations in Sweden, two women who came forward who said he had sexually molested them. Now, he was allowed to remain, uh, like a, sort of you could say, half-free in Britain um, under house arrest, could travel around, wore a bracelet on his leg as he challenged the extradition, saying he would answer the questions. And for the press who say he was charged with these crimes, he never was. And that raises very big questions. He was never even charged, but there are allegations he must answer to, and he should answer to them. He offered to be interviewed by Swedish officials. Um, they wanted him extradited to Sweden. The reason he has resisted this 
is not because of the questioning in Sweden. It's that he would immediately end up in a jail in Sweden. And what he is concerned about is not even that, but he's concerned that he would then be extradited to the United States. Uh, he's concerned that, well, among the documents they released were millions of emails from Stratfor, this quasi public intelligence and private intelligence agency. And among these emails was one from the vice president of Stratfor that said that there is a secret indictment against Julian Assange, that he, um, you know, they've been going after WikiLeaks for some time, apparently a secret grand jury in Virginia. And um, they've not only gone after Julian Assange, but others. And he is concerned that he would meet the same fate as Bradley Manning. Can I ask you something? in a U.S. jail. Amy Goodman, uh, one of the things that sticks out to me is, is there a record of people being uh, possibly charged with similar crimes as Sweden is thinking about charging Julian Assange? Being extradited like this and given this sort of attention, is is, is the international police force routinely doing what they're doing to Julian Assange to anyone else who might be in this situation? That's a good question. It's a very good question. Um, uh, you know, clearly he is sought after um, uh, by the U.S. government. I remember when the final decision came down from a British court to that he had to be extradited. That weekend, Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton went to Sweden. Um, Julian Assange says the issue in Sweden is not uh, he, he is more than he is more than willing to deal with, and he should. But he is so concerned about what's going to happen in the United States. He's even been concerned about being sent to Guantanamo. He doesn't know. And if for people to say, oh, don't be ridiculous, who would have thought what would happen to Bradley Manning happened, that the U.N. and other international human rights organizations said that he had been subjected to torture in detention, you know, stripped naked, held in isolation. Um, who would have thought this would happen to someone without even having a trial? Um, so this, he has very serious concerns. And another issue to raise is who is representing him. Um, Balthasar Garcon got involved in his case. He's that crusading judge from Spain um, and prosecutor who tried to get Pinochet, the Chilean dictator, extradited from Britain to Spain to answer for crimes against humanity for his 17 years of iron fist rule, where he was responsible for the deaths of thousands of Chileans and others. Baldassar Garcon, his own country, um, a conservative right-wing government, has gone after him, um, and so he is not a judge there at the moment. So he is now representing Julian Assange. Amazingly, Britain refused to extradite Pinochet, the dictator, to Spain, um, but they have uh, granted Sweden um, uh, their request to have Julian Assange extradited to Sweden. So... We're going to continue to follow this. It's an issue everyone should be following because of the persecution, not to be confused with prosecution, but you could put those two together, of this organization, WikiLeaks. Let's remember how many, you know, PayPal, uh, MasterCard, Visa, all shut down the ability of WikiLeaks to raise money. And yet this was a news organization, a media organization, that was working with the top newspapers of the world in getting out information. Um, you know, you could say in an odd way, Julian Assange is the most published person in the world. I went to see him in Britain when he had that ankle bracelet on. We, 
had an event in the east end of London on a beautiful blue sky day. It was the first day after a week of rain. Who knew if anyone would come out in the middle of the day in this very dark, huge venue that's been used as a boxing ring the night before? Hardly announced. Other venues had said no. Um, I was interviewing Julian Assange along with a Slovenian philosopher, Slavoj Žižek. 2,000 people screamed in, packed the place. I mean, the interest in what he has to say is so important. Um, and I joked, you know, you may be the most widely published person in the world. He said, I think that honor goes to a fellow Australian, and that is uh, Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> but, you know, while he himself, what's important is that it's not that Julian Assange wrote all these documents about atrocities in Afghanistan and Iraq. He simply published them. They were U.S. military documents. You think about Dan Ellsberg, who we interviewed on Democracy Now! on Friday, the most famous whistleblower in the United States. What could he do? He did the same thing to end the Vietnam War. He released 7,000 pages of documents. He faced jail for the rest of his life in this country. Um, it was terrifically frightening, but he said it was worth it when he thought of the numbers of lives lost in Vietnam on all sides. Ultimately, you know, he was exonerated. He was hailed a hero in this country. And you know what he says to this day? is that he so seriously regrets. He was a top Pentagon official, ran corporation official, had access to the safe that had the U.S. secret history of documents in Vietnam. He just regrets to this day that he didn't do it sooner. He says, I could have saved, saved thousands more lives. Our, so we have to look at whistleblowing. Our guest today, Amy Goodman, who you've just been listening to. I'm Bob McChesney. We're coming to you live in WILL AM 580. This is Media Matters. The phone lines are open if you have questions or comments for Amy Goodman. 217-333-9455 and our toll-free line at 1-800-222-9455. Amy, one other point here that sticks out to me and and uh, it seems really odd to me. Uh, generally, when people are given uh, protection uh, like Ecuador has done to Julian Assange, uh, they're allowed then to proceed from the embassy to the country uh, without interference. It sort of it seems like that's the standard protocol. Even if I'm not mistaken, Pinochet, after the coup in Chile in 1973, allowed the political uh, people who politically fled to the embassies to leave the country and go to the United States or some other place uh, after uh, leaving Chile in 1973, yet Britain is refusing to let him, Assange, leave the Ecuadorian embassy and proceed to Ecuador. Is that correct? And is there a precedent for this? Um, well, you are correct, and it's very frightening what Britain has done. It's why the ALBA countries, Latin American countries, are currently meeting in Ecuador, um, and the president, uh, Rafael Correa, has addressed them. He's the one who granted political asylum to Julian Assange. I mean, what has happened over these last few days, I've been up a lot of nights for all different reasons, and one of them has been to watch this live stream of what's happening outside the Ecuadorian embassy. Because on Wednesday night, and Julian referred to this uh, in his speech today, on Wednesday night, um, Britain threatened to raid the embassy. I mean, this is setting precedent all over the world, and it's going to endanger governments like Britain and the United States who, um, you know, when there is a person who wants to seek political refuge in a safe embassy, in a repressive place, um, this has been a tradition. And yet Britain is willing to break that tradition by saying, if we want him, we'll go in and extract him. This has enraged Latin American countries, uh, from conservative ones to progressive ones. Um, 
they say that they just have to give a week's notice to Ecuador to kind of decommission the embassy to say, okay, at the end of a week, we're going to raid it. And there's tremendous pressure. And Assange said today in his speech that on Wednesday night he heard British soldiers or police, he wasn't sure who it was, inside the internal fire escape of the embassy. Very, very scary. In the end, Britain backed off. But what they have said, and it's not clear if they would do this any night. It's just not clear, and that's part of this. It's the fear. Um, what they have said is that they will not allow Julian Assange to leave the embassy to get to an airport to fly to Ecuador where he's been granted political asylum. You know, the extension of any country, in this case Ecuador, is their embassy in another country. So he's been inside, holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy for the last two months. It's not clear what will happen. There are negotiations that are going on. We've talked to um, a number of people, including uh, Michael Ratner, who is the president emeritus of the Center for Constitutional Rights, who is one of Julian Assange's attorneys. But it is very frightening the lengths to which the U.S. and its allies are willing to go, in this case Britain, to get this man. And you have to ask, why are they so deeply concerned about Julian Assange? Well, what is, is the official cover that they're actually like these charges from Sweden are so, in their view, so incredible that they have to be dealt with and treat him along the lines of what one might treat, you know, a Nazi war criminal or something on the loose? Right. And remember, they're not charges. They're allegations. Yeah, allegations. They haven't even risen to the level of a charge where, you know, he has been indicted for something. No, I don't think what they're doing in Alexandria, Virginia, with the secret grand jury has anything to do with that. They want him here in the United States uh, to deal with releasing documents. Um, and, you know, WikiLeaks is an extremely significant organization. In a time when governments are cracking down on information, yes, WikiLeaks is a very threatening site because any whistleblower can get information to it without it being sourced. And what's most important is the information has not been challenged. It's not like Julian Assange wrote these documents. They're written by soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq. They're daily reports. And let me say why I think it's so important. I'll give one example okay. in Iraq. Um, February 2007, um, this was released by WikiLeaks. There were two men who put their hands up under an Apache American Apache helicopter to surrender. This is what one of the documents showed, written by the military. It was soldiers on the ground. And so these soldiers in the Apache helicopter called back to base, said, guys underneath us, Iraqis, are trying to surrender to us. And the lawyer on the base told the guys in the helicopter, the Apache helicopter, you cannot surrender to a helicopter. So they blew them away. These weren't rogue soldiers. They asked for permission. They blew these guys away on the ground, killed them. Now, I think if we had known at that time, the American people, what happened, everyone would gasp. I don't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat, an independent. Really, people were trying to surrender, and they blew them away. And I think an investigation would have been launched, and the Apache helicopter unit would have been called on the carpet. And the reason I feel this would have saved lives is that six months later, in July of 2007, in an area of Baghdad called New Baghdad, uh, Reuters employees, a videographer named Namir Norelzi, and 22 up-and-coming videographer, and his driver, Saeed Shamat, 40 years old, father of four, who drove around the Reuters reporters in Baghdad, were in this area of New Baghdad, and Iraqis were showing them around because the area had just been attacked about the day before, and they had their cameras and everything. And 
the same Apache helicopter unit is hovering overhead. And we now have, because of WikiLeaks, the actual conversations that were taking place in the Apache helicopter. This isn't, you know, peaceniks on the ground that are making up this video. These are, this is a Apache helicopter video that is showing the men on the ground and hearing, you're hearing the soldiers in the Apache helicopter asking permission to attack. And they are cursing and they are laughing and they blow up these men on the ground. Um, they kill 12, they kill a number of people. And then uh, a van pulls up from the neighborhood to help the survivors. Saeed Shema is one of them. He's critically wounded. You see him on the ground from the Apache helicopter video crawling away. And they ask for permission to blow up the van, and they blow up the rest of the people. The people on the ground, the people are killed in the van, two children in the van, just a neighborhood van helping the wounded, are critically wounded. And they kill ultimately 12 people that day. Our this guest, video, Amy Goodman, who you've just been listening to, she is the host of Democracy Now!, well-known, I suspect, to many, if not all of you. Also the author, co-author of a brand-new book, along with Dennis Moynihan, The Silenced Majority Stories of Uprisings, Occupations, Resistance, and Hope, has an introduction by Michael Moore. It's coming out uh, just this coming uh, next month uh, in September with Haymarket Books. And I gather you tell us, Amy, this is the first stop on your 100-stop tour. That's right. Uh, we're honored here at Media Matters. If you'd like to call in and have a question or comment for Amy Goodman, the number 217-333-9455 or toll-free 1-800-222-9455. We have a couple of people who have been waiting patiently. Let's go right to the phone lines. Let's start with line one, Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Amy Goodman. Hi, Amy. I hope to see you in Portland when you're uh, here. Oh, um, I can't wait. Been... Maybe we'll end up at the Baghdad. And a shout-out to our friends who listen to KBOO Radio. Yeah, indeed. Um, I've always been impressed by the evolution of Democracy Now!'s production quality over the years, and I'd like you to talk a bit about the technology behind the show. You know, for instance, how does your technology compare with what the well-funded network broadcasts use? And in particular, I'm curious about the extent to which you use open source software. Thanks a lot. Oh, thanks so much for that call, and it's a, such an important point. I mean, we have developed the website. You know, we are celebrating 16 years of Democracy Now! It's our sweet 16. We started in 1996 as the only daily election show in public broadcasting. We're on a couple dozen community radio stations and so proud to be. Um, then the week of September 11, 2001, we started on TV, one public access TV station in New York City called Manhattan Neighborhood Network. And the great George Stoney, and everyone should know his name, he just died. He was 96 years old, father of public access. Um, such an amazing guy was on the board of MNN. They started broadcasting us right after the attacks as kind of emergency broadcasting. And when other TV stations around the country saw that we were on television as well. We were the closest national broadcast to Ground Zero, just blocks from the World Trade Center. They started requesting our show. And so we started sending out the show by FedEx. We couldn't wait for snail mail because the new, it was a daily news show. It was the fastest we could do at the time. But why this relates to your question is we wanted to go even faster than FedEx, not to mention that um, – we couldn't afford to send out. We were soon garbage bags full of videos all over the country. We started then on a couple dozen community radio stations. Now we're on over 1,000 public radio and television stations around the country and around the world. We needed the Internet to be able to communicate with stations and people all over the world because we perfected a way of sending broadcast quality video through the Internet. So then you could, a TV station could take us live, not wait for the mail. And that's how we grew and grew. 
And as we developed our website, so we were way ahead of the networks because this was all open, free to everyone as it is today. You can download the video, you can download the audio, you can pass it around, and we transcribe our daily news hour every single day with the help of volunteers around the world. You know, you in Portland might be... Uh, on Monday, our transcriber of the first segment, and someone in Hong Kong might be the transcriber of the second segment. They take the MP3 audio, they transcribe the segment, send it back to our wonderful Neil Shibata, who is also transcribing and checking everyone's transcriptions. And by the afternoon, we have every word of every show online, which is great for researchers and for students and uh, for you to read information about the latest news of the day, bringing to bear the voices of people at the grassroots, not those pundits who know so little about so much we get on all the networks. And as we develop the technology on our website, and everyone can go to democracynow.org, we are very committed to it being open source, which means we're contributing to the body of knowledge of software that people can partake in um, uh, all over so that we, you know, advance uh, human ability uh, to convey information, which is why, and this is something Bob has been involved with, that Free Press has been involved with, it is so important we keep the Internet open and free and not let, once all of this research and all of this technology has been developed with the use of public resources, not let it be privatized by the corporations. Amy Goodman, I was just wondering, if somehow you were you and the Democracy Now! team were just given the resources so you could hire you know, 25 full-time great investigative reporters, young Jeremy Scahill, say, uh, what sort of assignments would you put them on? What sort of stories would you like to cover that right now you don't have the resources to do? Well, um, we are always committed to, and we do this, but, I mean, we cannot do enough basic journalism following the money to investigate as we move into this election year. I mean, it is remarkable as we move into 2012 election that, People are feeling increasingly iced out because of the power of money in politics, that a couple of billionaires can determine who will be elected all over this country. It is an outrage, and I don't say it's a done deal, because I think people are, um, there's a huge negative backlash against this. But the Citizens United decision was only the final sort of tipping point. It was happening before, but it opened the floodgates for money in politics. And we got to follow, you know, the latest ad, for example, is... Um, a group of, they say, Navy SEALs who are nonpartisan who've put out an ad saying President Obama is taking too much credit for killing Osama bin Laden um, uh, and that he should shut up. Uh, this is just a remarkable thing. They say they're nonpartisan. If you trace it back, you know, you trace it back to some Republican consultants' offices and it's sort of the swift voting they're attempting of President Obama. Uh, but I don't want to make this a partisan thing that's just the Republicans attacking the Democrats because the Democrats have, are spending a fortune. We're talking about billions of dollars that are going into these elections. If you're a young person who wants to get involved in politics and you're thinking, hmm, you mean I wouldn't be working on issues in a grassroots organization? I would have to spend my time raising millions of dollars even for a state office job? I mean, it, this is not worth it because I'm committed to issues, they might think. We have to get back to this is worth it. Not, for example, the Koch brothers pouring money into the Wake County School Board elections so that this board, the election, the school board gets taken over by people who are for resegregating the schools. You know, even at the school board level, we're talking about a fortune being spent 
by out-of-state, you know, um, uh, billionaires who want to change the public education landscape in America. This all has to be challenged, and we have to follow the money. That's what um, uh, that level of uh, journalists working on an issue like this will expose. It and seems, that's what I think is very important. It strikes me, Amy Goodman, as I look at your new book, The Silence Majority, Stories of Uprisings, Occupations, Resistance, and Hope, and then I listen to what you're talking about with our electoral system and sort of the what the news media talk about in our electoral politics. There's like parallel universes of, of these experiences so many Americans are having and their, their concerns. And then an electoral system that seems to be off in some deranged direction, having very little to do with the lives of American people. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, I also want to stress people should not hear it wrong. It's not the silent majority. No, silenced, silent. yeah. Right. But And you said it right. But I think people just sort of hear. This is a play on that word, uh, on that phrase. And the reason we talk about this is I really do think that those who are deeply concerned about the direction this country is going, who are terrified of corporate control, who are infuriated by the challenges to people's privacy, the attack on whistleblowers, the billions that are being spent on wars abroad from people on the ground to the drone attacks that are very concerned about inequality in this country and that big sucking sound uh, coming from the bottom 90 percent, the wealth going to the top 1 percent, that all of these issues unite people across the political spectrum. And those who are concerned about this are not a fringe minority, not even a silent majority, but the silenced majority, silenced by the corporate media, which is why we have to take it back, which is why media matters. Our guest, Amy Goodman, if you'd like to call in with questions or comment, the number 217-333-9455, toll-free 1-800-222-9455. We have a couple of callers who have been waiting patiently. Let's get back to the phone lines right now. Line 3, Champaign County, you're on the air with Amy Goodman. I appreciate it so much. Um, just what you were saying about whistleblowers, I want to return to that in some way. Uh, uh, the idea that uh, Obama, the Obama administration is being attacked for leaking when it's using national security laws in an unprecedented way to to um, kibosh uh, whistleblowers. Uh, I wanted to talk about the, the person you mentioned earlier, Drake, and the stuff that he did. He basically uh, went against a major corporation, SAIC, by attacking their trailblazer um, work, which exploded twice. I mean, they actually... Uh, they, they actually uh, got uh, contracts to do this sort of coordination of, of sur uh, surveillance information uh, twice. They, they actually, it blew up in their faces, and they, they actually got the contract again because they're so well-connected. Now, it came up when um, Juan Gonzalez, your colleague, did this report about how they paid a, uh, I think it was a half a billion dollar fine or something, correct me if you remember, uh, for, for, again, malfeasance and ineptitude in doing a, uh, a, a software program for New York City. This company needs scrutiny, and uh, Bartlett and Steele, I know who you uh, like a lot, um, should get some money to do a book on them. Uh, Tim Shorrock is the other writer that's done a lot on SAIC. Uh, they're here on this campus at Research Park, and they have a nice uh, subsidized connection, uh, redundant connection to the Internet, too, and um, they, along with Riverglass, are doing all this surveillance. But the, I just, I really would appreciate some more scrutiny to, to this company. They 
they have a contract uh, called um, um, Project Deep Green, which basically all that's been reported on it is the press release in the last uh, uh, three years since it was announced. It's a battlefield management uh, sort of overarching program that would coordinate drones and automated drones and, uh, uh, you know, reports from the ground. It's, it's you know, uh, I'm sure the tech people see it as, you know, the 21st century or maybe 22nd century warfare uh uh, uh, so anyway, I'm, uh, it's uh, not formed in the uh, form of a question, but I'd like for you to say something about uh, some of that, if you would. Appreciate your work so much. Thank you very much, caller. Amy Goodman? Well, um, I, you have raised a lot of issues, and I think we should start off by talking about just who Thomas Drake is, the man who faced 35 years in prison but worked out a plea deal. Um, was an NSA whistleblower at the National Security Agency, which he worked with for decades. Um, he was uh, being charged with espionage for unauthorized willful retention of five classified documents. Drake said in a public speech, espionage is the last thing my whistleblowing and First Amendment activities were all about. Um, so, uh, oh, there's so many issues to raise there. He said... Um, he won the Ridenauer Prize for truth-telling. In his acceptance speech, he said, truth-tellers such as myself are those who are simply doing their jobs and honoring their oaths to serve their nation under the law of the land. We're dedicated to the proposition that government service is of, for, by the people. We emphatically do not serve in order to manipulate on behalf of the powerful nor to conceal unlawful, illegal, or embarrassing secrets from the public because truth does matter. Truth may be inconvenient, it may cause embarrassment, it may threaten the powers that be and their unlawful activities, but it is still the truth. I have but this one life to live. Yes, you know, that was whistleblower Thomas Drake. You know, Amy, one, right. of the, one of the things that comes out as you're talking about this that you've referred to before, but I think I'd really like to see you zero in on is one would hope that our free press, our news media, uh, which depend, in theory, upon having access to, to material so they can tell the truth about what the government is doing in our name, would be leading the fight to protect uh, people like Thomas Drake and, or certainly protect their due process. Uh, how would you evaluate the news media coverage of these issues and, uh, so far? I mean, it's been terrible because the media in this country, unlike in other countries, with organizations like WikiLeaks, for example, they just talk about, you know, who is Julian Assange. It's all about his personality. Whereas in the rest of the world, the headlines are about the documents that were released, um, you know, talking about the U.S., for example, manipulating the Spanish judiciary to drop charges against people like Donald Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense, because people in Spain were trying to sue the Bush administration for waging these wrongful wars. Um, all this information was coming out. And so each country would focus on the U.S. government diplomatic cables that were released around their country. You know, in fact, in organizations like WikiLeaks, um, I think were partially responsible for the Arab Spring. The people of Tunisia that launched the Arab Spring, they knew their dictator, Ben Ali, was corrupt and brutal, but the documents show the U.S. government knew it full well, too, and was still uh, shoring him up to the tune of millions of dollars, and it just infuriated the Tunisians. And then that sparked the Egyptian Revolution, and it went on from there. 
um, people like Thomas Drake in this country, they are standing up. It is frightening what they face. Uh, the caller who just called in and asked about SAIC, I can't go into all the details because I, I wouldn't want to say something wrong, and I don't have all the details at my fingertips now. But he was deeply concerned about this, uh, about the U.S. government spending a fortune with companies like SAIC, uh, and a company that Juan Gonzalez, my co-host on Democracy Now!, exposed in New York, very involved in the City Time scandal, the, um, that was one of the most, the biggest corruption scandal in U.S. history, a company that got, um, uh, you know, millions of dollars that uh, wasted those dollars. And, I mean, city attorney, U.S. attorney, others were really following Juan's work. And Drake was dealing with this in a different way, having to do with government contracts with this corporation um, that were, we were spending billions of dollars for surveillance technology that was only hurting the American people because it would ultimately lead to the spying on American people, which is happening now. And he backed off and he said, I'm not going to be a part of this. I think the American people need to know this. And they went after him big time. And we must know about these stories. I want to, before we go to our next caller, I want to ask you about one thing we make sure we talk about on the show today, which you've covered on Democracy Now!, and, and I think it's one of the great issues of our time that, again, is not getting sufficient coverage elsewhere, which is the voter suppression campaign going on in a number of states uh, to limit the ability of poor people, uh, elderly people, students, uh, people in, in disadvantaged communities, uh, people of color to vote. Um, you know, and just, you know, frankly, someone told me 30 years ago, this would be going on or 25 years ago, I would have said it's impossible. And it's going on before our eyes. What's your take on this? I mean, here we are moving into the elections. And if people don't pay attention to this, the issues that we are supposed to be voting on, you know, from foreign policy to domestic policy, won't matter. If millions of people are disqualified from voting, cannot participate in our democracy, and that's what's happening below the corporate media radar screen. Um, just Friday on Democracy Now!, we took on the story of Pennsylvania, a judge upholding the, Pencil voter, the Pennsylvania voter ID law, um, which one of the Republican political officials said the law is designed to, quote, allow Mitt Romney to win the state. It could lead to the disqualification of three-quarters of a million people in Pennsylvania alone, and these states aren't that large. And it's happening in Florida. It is happening in Ohio. Um, it is happening in states around the country where these repressive voter ID laws that make it extremely difficult to vote. You know, as other countries in the industrialized world, have, you know, same-day voting and registration, wanting to encourage people to vote. Because whatever view you have, and you're entitled to vote however you want to vote, but we want people voting. What's so interesting in this country is that there is so little voter fraud, you know, people going to the polls, acting as someone else, or being able to vote when they shouldn't be able to vote. There is very little documented voter fraud. And yet it's becoming a major issue today. States using, under the guise of, quote, voter cracking down on voter fraud, they are making it increasingly difficult for the most marginalized, and then it moves to the center, and it won't be the most marginalized, people to vote. People who don't have access to money. 
um, people, older people, African Americans. I mean, the kind of ID you need to vote, it is astounding. We're talking about in some states you can have a gun ID that allows you to vote, but a state government ID will not allow you to vote. And why, I kept asking our guests, you know, well, why would a voter ID law make it harder for African Americans, for example, to vote? Well, it's like a poll tax of the past. And in the 1965, um, uh, you know, uh, civil voter rights laws, we said poll taxes are not okay. You shouldn't have to have money to be able to vote. And a lot of these IDs, it's difficult to get without money, and that precludes a certain group of people. These are the very people who don't have the lobbying power to change these laws that are going after the most vulnerable, and we as a civilized society have to stand with everyone. Our guest, Amy Goodman. This is Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Amy Goodman, of course, the host of Democracy Now!, the uh, ubiquitous on on television and radio uh, daily news broadcast, and also available on the Internet at democracynow.org. urge you all to go there. She's also the co-author of the new book, The Silenced Majority Stories of Uprisings, Occupations, Resistance, and Hope, with Dennis Moynihan, with an introduction by Michael Moore, just out this coming month in September, Haymarket Books. And I'm honored to say that we're informed that this is the first stop on our 100-stop tour. Uh, Let's go now to a very patient caller, Line 4 Omaha. You're on the air with Amy Goodman. I was calling to see if I could get uh, Amy to comment on a theory that I have. I'm sure it's not uh, new, but I, I don't feel that it gets much coverage. Uh, the size and, and role of the government is uh, a big theme in this upcoming election. And I feel that corporations uh, don't really want a smaller government, but despite backing conservative politicians and, the, and funding the Tea Party, I think that they find it a, a useful tool in their business practices, whether it's uh, shifting costs uh, to the public through the government, uh, in the form of property and sales tax breaks and research and development for uh, new technology that they can then make money on. And then they have uh, uh, the government has to take up the costs associated with the lower wages that they pay and reduce benefits and, and an unhealthy uh, public that they that they have caused. And I feel that um, the government is it's a, a convenient straw man uh, for them when they cause havoc in the economy or, or elsewhere in society. And if that big government were to go away, there'd be nothing for them to hide behind, and their cost of, of business would, would go up as well. Well, thank you very much, caller. Amy Goodman? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, corporations enjoy the great benefits of, uh, of government uh, because they build the infrastructure for these corporations to thrive. Now, this is a big debate in this country right now, and it's an important debate. Uh, because I think most people believe we should have safe roads, safe food, um, safe air, and that has to do with government. Um, there was a really interesting piece in the New York Times this week in the business section called America's Aversion to Taxes by Eduardo Porter. Um, and he was saying that every developed country aspires to provide a better life for its people. The United States, among the richest of all, falls in, fails in important ways. It has the highest poverty and the highest infant mortality among developed nations. We provide among the least generous unemployment benefits in the industrial world. 
Not long ago, one of the most educated countries in the world, the United States, is slipping behind. The reason is not difficult to figure out. Rich though we are, we cannot afford the policies needed to improve our record. The politicians in Washington all know we face a long-term fiscal crisis. By 2020, 70 million Americans are expected to be on Social Security, up from 45 million in 2000. The ranks on Medicare will swell to 64 million from 40 million in 2000. Virtually every economist knows that just maintaining Medicare and Medicaid benefits will require raising taxes on the middle class. And the article goes on to say in other countries, um, they in the industrialized world, they're very willing to raise taxes because. It's about being civilized. It's about having a common ground, a base that we um, work from. Nobody, rich or poor, wants to see someone on the street. It, it endangers us all in terms of how we feel uh, about ourselves and in terms of what it means for all of us to live in a civilized society. And this rubric or this, um, the way taxes are talked about in this country has to completely be changed. You know, it's funny. We have to talk about all of us and what we want. What also comes in here is another issue you cover often on uh, Democracy Now! In fact, you have the subtitle is the War and Peace Report, which is the United States spends, if you factor in all the secret budgets and interest payments and et cetera, et cetera, uh, around a trillion dollars annually on military spending and war. So that's where a lot of the big government is and a lot of where the money goes instead of going to uh, Social Security or Medicare or roads or schools. And what's striking this year is how, the, you know, it's become increasingly clear that the issue of the size of the defense budget or military budget is not really much of a political debating issue. I mean, that is absolutely key. Uh, as you have, for example, the Republicans talking about shrinking the government down to the size of a bathtub. You have an increased, I mean, uh, you know, the Ryan budget, and, you know, we can talk about Ryan because it's very important to talk about a concrete plan. Um, he is nothing if, I mean, Ryan is very important because it's very hard to pin down Mitt Romney around what his actual plans are. It's always vague. You can never really figure out exactly what the proposals are. But Congress member Ryan, the head of the House Budget Committee, um, is a man with a plan. If nothing else, he's got a plan, and it's written down, and it lets us know that they are talking about shredding the safety net of this country. But not when it comes to uh, because they want to shrink the size of government. But when it comes to the Pentagon, um, you see they are offering more than the Pentagon is asking for. And, of course, we need to protect veterans who come home and provide them with, you know, with all of the services because, I mean, you see the level of homelessness of veterans, you see the despair, you see the psychological problems. We have to get to the root of why it is we feel we need to wage war, that war is an answer in the 21st century. Whether we're talking about Afghanistan or we're talking about the latest drone attacks in Yemen or Pakistan, why are we pouring money into a military budget and taking it away from the social welfare of the people of this country? Our guest, Amy Goodman, we've only got about oh, eight or nine minutes left. Let's go to another caller who's been waiting patiently. Line one, Urbana, you're on the air. 
Hello. Uh, could there possibly be a class action suit against the federal government regarding the detention of Bradley Manning now for two and a half years? They violated his rights to a speedy trial. It's an insult to every citizen that the federal government could do that. I'll, I'll hang up and listen. Thank you very much, Dollar. Um, I'm going to try to answer a few questions real fast. And Bradley Manning is such an important issue for everyone uh, because you have a young man who is a U.S. soldier. He was on the ground in Iraq. And um, what they are saying is that he got access to millions of U.S. government documents. And you have to ask how that could be possible, uh, whether they are so horrified that um, – uh, if, in fact, he did this, that here he is in the desert on the ground and he can get access to this from a simple, low-level government computer in Iraq. Um, but here he is. He's arrested. He's brought to Kuwait. Then he's sent to Quantico, where, um, as I was saying before, so many human rights organizations, United Nations, that he was held in detention for more than two years in conditions that amount to torture. Um I think it's interesting what you're saying. Could a class action suit be brought on his behalf? Uh, I am not a lawyer, but I do know that when someone is treated like this and not even had access to a trial for more than two years, he is being used as an example to whistleblowers in this country and around the world. You do not dare do this or we'll defy all the laws the government is saying that you consider, um, uh, you know, what has made this country great. And it's frightening, and we got to pay attention, and people should check out democracynow.org for all of our coverage of Bradley Manning. And it's, uh, I think, intimately tied to the coverage of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. In fact, I would say, in addition to, or along with Democracy Now!, Glenn Greenwald's work has been primarily the main American places you're going to find coverage uh, of these stories, detailed, continuous, ongoing, uh, and thorough. Uh, let's go to our final caller now, line four, Bloomington. You're on the air with Amy Goodman. Oh, thank you, Amy, for all you do. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, I had two questions. One, I never was able to find out what happened to that situation when you were arrested at the National Convention a few years ago. And uh, the other thing, I, I've been reading this George Lakoff and his... Um, how to talk democratic and how we are using Republican language. Uh, just one example, you know, he talks about uh, uh, um, partial birth abortion. It's a made-up name. We shouldn't even be using that. Uh-huh. And uh, 100% Well, first of all, a shout-out to folks in Bloomington, to Firehouse Broadcasting, WFHB, and Community Access TV, where Democracy Now! broadcasts every day. It's wonderful to be in so many different communities and come to know the geography of public media. Um, as for uh, uh, the language used, yes, uh, it's very important that uh, we not adopt language that immediately... Uh, biases people. Um, even, for example, uh, when we're, I was just talking about Paul Ryan, the Sanctity of Life Act that he has co-sponsored, um, that critics call the Personhood Act, which gives rights to a fetus, bestows rights on um, actually uh, a fertilized zygote um, um, equal <laughs> to a human being. And you know, whether we're talking about personhood laws around the country that, as Mitt Romney says, corporations are people, as he said at the Iowa State Fair recently, 
uh, where Paul Ryan just visited in his first, you know, debut uh, alone address as vice presidential candidate. You have president, you have um, Mitt Romney saying corporations are people, and you have Congress member Ryan saying uh, zygotes are people. I think we have to <laughs> focus on people as people and how we treat uh, already born people in this country. That's what we have to look at now. That is what's at stake uh, in this election, is the environment we want to create for the people of this country. And we have to be very clear about that. You know, Amy, she, the first part of the caller's question, and I want to close in this, uh, dealt with your being arrested in 2008. Oh, but, yes, of course. But, but, I'm but, sorry. But let me put this in context. There's a broader issue here I want to get at uh, besides your personal story in addition to, which is it seems to me that, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, the right to assemble in general by, for protesters, which is one of the core freedoms and rights in the First Amendment of the Constitution, has been truncated, circumscribed, if not eliminated in some cases, and they've created these sort of free speech zones, you know, many miles away from wherever you would like to assemble. And also we're seeing journalists now, reporters, getting worked over and roughed up at demonstrations where they're covering them in ways that I don't really recall being that common a generation or two ago. Are you sensing this too, or am I missing something? Oh, no, I, I think that's very important, it's certainly as we move into the Republican and Democratic conventions. You know, we're headed this weekend to uh, Tampa first uh, for the Republican convention, then we'll go to Charlotte in North Carolina for the Democratic convention. And when we cover the last conventions in Denver and St. Paul, uh, well, the Democracy Now! team, three of us were arrested. Trufa Bokadus, who now uh, does heroic reporting from Egypt, um, Nicole Salazar, who is a multimedia reporter, and I, on the first day of the Republican convention, you know, we do expanded two hours of coverage, breaking with convention. We'll be doing the same thing next week and the week after that, and we were doing it in 2008. As we were covering the peaceful protests, the authorities, the police in St. Paul and Minneapolis, first arrested Nicole and Sharif as they were simply covering the police dealing with the protesters. They took Nicole down on the ground. She was hit from behind and in front of her by riot police, and they immediately took the battery out of her camera. Sharif, who was telling them to calm down, they threw him up against a wall and kicked him twice in the chest and took him down. They bloodied both of them. I was on the floor of the convention. I got a call from our senior producer, Mike Burke, who said, come quickly. Sharif and Nicole have been arrested. I couldn't even believe it. I raced out from the convention floor to the site where they were arrested. And as I asked the riot police, you know, they fully contained the area. It was a peaceful situation at that point. If I could speak to their commanding officer because I wanted to have my colleagues who had credentials like I did, which were given by the police, um, to have them released. They pulled me through the police line, and they twisted my arms behind my back. Um, they slapped the handcuffs on and threw me against a car, then onto the ground. And I was faced, I, I was hit with a misdemeanor uh, interfering with a peace officer. If only there was a peace officer in the vicinity. And then, I know we don't you... have time to discuss this, but <laughs> um, in for... the end, yeah. we were arrested, and we sued, and we settled. And it was a landmark settlement going after the Secret Service for pulling our credentials and the police. Well, congrats. And we have to challenge the authorities for doing that. Amy Goodman, thank you so much for taking an hour of your time to come join us uh, and talk about your new book, The Silence Majority. Good luck with that, and of course, with your work at Democracy Now! 
Thank you so much. And I want to thank Christina Williams, my producer, Kyle Crow, my engineer. I'm Bob McChesney. Thank you, dear listeners, as always, for joining us. I'll be back in 167 hours with David Sroda. Until then, have a great week. Bye-bye. Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance, private instruction for social or competitive dancing, weddings, or other special events, lessons for singles or couples, beginners, or advanced of all ages. Information at 378-4601 or on your web, search at Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance. This is Illinois Public Media, WILL 580 AM and 99.1 FM.